Some brands offer you low finance or cashback or servicing. Renault don't do ors. We do ands. The Renault Kajar with 1.91% APR and €1,000 cashback and three years servicing, saving you thousands. Renault, the brand with the ands. Visit your local Renault dealer. Finances made under a higher purchase agreement. Terms and conditions apply. Deposit required. Subject to lending criteria. See Renault.ie. Welcome to another podcast by InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC Sports, your home for Tar Heel football, basketball, and recruiting. I'm your host, Tommy Ashley, joined by Ross Martin and Greg Barnes. It's our weekly Tuesday night podcast, yet we're recording it on Monday night because uh, the ACC Tournament Baseball Championship starts this week, and we're going to talk about that to start. But I also want to let you know, after the break, Ross Martin's done a tremendous job with a series on Kobe White and his recruitment and his preparation for North Carolina. Also, Leaky, Leaky Black visit, getting some information there. Um, Ross, so I'm going to come to you in the second half about that. Really love to hear um, your tales of those trips uh, on Carolina's two very important basketball recruits, not named Nasir Little for next year. And also, uh, thought. Dre Bly's birthday is this week, so we might hit on who we think were the best Carolina defensive players on the football field in quite some time. I feel like I'm going to show my age there, and Ross is going to show his youth, and Greg will be somewhere in between. Let's start out with baseball, though, Greg. We've got the ACC tournament starting at the Durham Athletic Park. Uh, Carolina gets the one seed. Tell us a little bit about what you know about how these these pairings were set up. I understand the seedings, um, but it was interesting to me that the one seed didn't get opening night, but that may be by design by Carolina. What have you heard? What have you learned about that? And your thoughts on just sort of the the pools in general before we break down Carolina's side? Well, I think it's important to note that the, the coaches um, have struggled with the format for this tournament for ages, it seems like. You know, if you look at the SEC, they have that brutal double elimination tournament that I think you have to win five games to actually win the tournament. Uh, this is kind of it's fun for fans, but it's excruciating for teams and for staffs entering the NCAA tournament. And so the ACC coaches have been against that for, for a long time. And the previous kind of format was uh, where you had the – uh, you know, 14 pods essentially. Uh, and you had you know, three games you're guaranteed. And then the two winners of those two different pods advanced to the uh, ACC title game. Uh, and then you had the situation where you started adding more teams to ACC. And so they added two playing games on Tuesday. So there were 10 teams in. Um, and then as you, Mike Fox explained to us uh, this afternoon, uh, him, uh, specifically, but I think a lot of the coaches, you know, the more teams you can get into a, a conference tournament, the better. And so they wanted to get you know, not just 10, but maybe 12 teams in. And so now we're with this format uh, and kind of the way this format is set up uh, is that you have four different groups of three teams each. Uh, and then you have the, the two games. So you're guaranteed two games. And then if you're able to to win your bracket you advance to semifinals on saturday and then of course if you win you know that game you advance to the title game on on sunday 
And so it's, it's kind of been a unique uh, uh, approach to how the coaches have kind of debated this and talked about it and changed it over the years. Having said that, one thing that has stayed true over the years is that the number one overall seed pretty much gets to pick uh, what day they went off. And so what UNC did uh, is in, in hopes of kind of keeping this as close to a, a traditional week as possible is that they wanted Thursday off. Uh, and so what that allows them to do is it gives them an extra day to rest the bullpen. They don't have to play on Tuesday uh, because you, know, you just had a series that wrapped up on Saturday against Virginia Tech. Um, and so that's really how UNC uh, chose to approach that. And so I know a lot of fans are curious about that, but uh, the one seed gets to say, hey, I don't want to play on this day. They don't get to say what time. That's up to the ACC. Uh, but UNC picked uh, kind of their schedule in terms of when they wanted to play. And so Mike Fox was able to set it up exactly how he wanted it. Yeah, and then you look at the schedule they got. Um, they're playing what Pittsburgh on Thursday. Wednesday. Wednesday, and then Friday against Georgia Tech. Sets up nicely for the Tar Heels. Kind of going back to the schedule here, Greg, you know, UNC had that big run um, before after the, the state sweep, and they defeated uh, UNC Asheville and Richmond. They kind of went on a little drought there. They had lost to Coastal Carolina. They lost two of three against Duke, which was a little surprising there. And then they lost to uh, UNCW before winning three against Virginia Tech at home. Talking to Mike Fox and the players today, and this week, where is this team now, given those three wins, and where do you think the mindset is kind of heading into the postseason? Well, I think you know, North Carolina started the season 7-7 seven and seven, uh, and lost some series, lost the series ECU. Uh, at the time, we didn't know ECU was going to be as good as they have been, but granted, they, they've fallen off a little bit of late. Uh, but after that, I think there was a lot of questions about how good this team actually was because they, they, they dropped the – Opening series in ACC to Louisville. Uh, they dropped a couple more, and then they dropped the one to Florida State. Uh, and so they had a lot of doubters. And in talking with the players and with, with Mike, uh, you know, that, that really served them well because they, they finally got things turned around, and they were like, look, we're, we're going to prove to people that we're a lot better than how we started. And so they really rode this momentum uh, through really the end of March into April. I mean, they were fantastic in April. And then exam week comes. And so you don't play a series that, that weekend. And they kind of took their, their foot off the gas a little bit. And they come out of exam break. And as you, as you mentioned, you know, they lose four out of five entering that Virginia Tech game. And so Mike was really uh, you know, honest coming into that series saying, look, we just need to play better. Um, you know, I'm not so m- worried about wins and losses, but we have to play better than what we have been doing. And they did that. Uh, you know, Virginia Tech is not a good team. So the fact that they swept the Hokies is not surprising, but they were dominant in all three games. I mean, none of those games were competitive, and that's really what you wanted to see. And so I think coming out of that series, uh, Mike feels better. Uh, I think the fact that you know Luca Delatri was back in the rotation finally, you know, after pretty much three months sitting out, and then you got the bats going again. You know, Brandon Riley has just been on fire of late. Um, and then you've also got you know, various you know, other guys. You know, Michael Bush has had a good year all year long. Kyle Daughtry has, has played very well. And so you've got some guys really have, have put together some, uh, some good performances of late. And so I think the team, now that they got through that Virginia Tech series, they feel like they kind of have their feet back under them, and they're re- really ready now 
center of this postseason because, look, last year uh, we're so used to these North Carolina teams being dominant teams all year long into the postseason. Well, I think there was only one guy, Adam Pate, last year that had played in the NCAA regional. Um, and so that was new for the team because they had missed you know, two years of NCAA postseason play. And so even though they got knocked out of the, the, the opening round last year, that was a lot of experience for, for some of these guys. And so they understand what it takes. They understand uh, that they fell short last year. And so they're really excited now to enter, enter this week, the ACC tournament, uh, and kind of gearing up and focusing in on, on postseason play, which we, with each game is a little bit more uh, intensity, a little bit more effort, those types of things. Greg, you mentioned Delatry and his return, though he pitched, what, a couple innings, a couple, three or four innings in the Virginia Tech series. Talk about the importance of that for this team. I mean, the, the pitching came around after that 7-7 seven and seven start. Uh, Brett Daniels had a great year. Um, but to get your ace back this late in the season, I mean, is it that big a deal for North Carolina? Is it as much a help as it seems like it could be or is it just something that you really don't want to mess with the chemistry, mess with the, the rotation that they've had? I mean, just speak to that and what Fox had to say about that. Yeah, well, I think I think the fact that you know, Luca Delatry was expected to be the Friday night guy. And I, you can make the case that last year, even though you, you, you still had um, – oh, his name slipping my mind now. But you still had a Friday night ace – uh, you Delatry being the Saturday guy ended up being the the key cog late in the year. It was kind of the the main guy, um, and I think um, JB Bacacus. Uh, sorry, that that slipped my mind for a second. Uh, but you know, JB struggled kind of late in the season, uh, but but Luca really stepped up. And then you thought you were going to have him as your ace, and you could kind of fill in around him. Well, he has that stress reaction in his throwing arm. And then uh, you kind of have a lot of question marks. You know, they, they thought uh, Rodney Hutchinson was a guy that could really uh, be a great midweek guy and it could possibly start in the po- in the weekend. Never really kind of materialized into that. Um, he was he was adequate this year. You know, Austin Bergner has been very, very solid. That's kind of the Saturday guy. Cooper Chriswell was a you know, Juco guy who um, you know, didn't start on the weekend early in the year. And he, He's kind of come on late and has played very well. Uh, and then, you know, Tyler Baum is a guy who uh, had some good efforts early in the year. He struggled a bit of late. So uh, there's a lot of moving parts on the weekends. And, you know, Mike Fox, I don't think most coaches are this way. He's always had pretty much a set rotation. And then you rely on your your relievers. And he really hasn't had that this year. And so now I think you get you get Luca back. And he he is going to pitch this week. We're not exactly sure if he's going to go Friday or Saturday, depending on you know, if they actually advance to Saturday. But they want to make sure that he has another game under his belt. So maybe by the time you get into the postseason, it may not be that opening weekend, but maybe if they get to the Super Regional, he all of a sudden becomes your Friday night guy again. Uh, but by getting him in the rotation, you have a an ace there, potentially. And what that does is that allows Chriswell to kind of move maybe to your Saturday guy. And now you've got Bergner potentially as a Sunday guy, and all of a sudden, that is a very good rotation. And Baum can come in as a you know, middle reliever. As you mentioned, Brett Daniels has been fantastic this year. You've got an All-American Josh Hyatt as a closer. So by adding uh, Luca back into the rotation, it just strengthens you and makes you that much better. And this is one of those unique UNC teams where uh, 
uh, the record when scoring five or fewer runs is actually very poor. I don't know the exact number, but I want to say it's something like you know, six and 17 or something when scoring fewer than five runs. That's typically not the case for a Mike Fox team. They've always relied on pitching, and hitting has been suspect at times. That's kind of been flipped this year. So now you add Luca back in the rotation. If he can get back to kind of where they thought he could be, and he looked really good on Saturday, now, now you're talking about this team, okay, now they can hit. But now they can also pitch at like an elite level, like we're used to seeing UNC teams pitch. And that makes them really a scary proposition entering the postseason. Yeah, I remember, I believe it was they played Virginia Tech in the finals several years ago, and they'd thrown all the. Yeah, and they you have to rely on a midweek guy to throw that series or throw that championship game. So any idea what the rotation is? This week, I mean, you've got Pittsburgh on Wednesday night, Georgia Tech on Friday night, win them both, and then you've got Saturday and Sunday if you win. How do you see Mike Fox playing it? Do you throw one of your midweek guys in the first game of the the pool? Because if you lose one, you're going to be done. And and this is better than the other way of doing it, uh, where they had the four team pods because you could, you know, be one and zero and already eliminated or some crazy idea going on but if you go two and oh you're in one and one puts it up in the air so what does fox do this week yeah and it was actually taylor cherry uh who pitched that 2013 game also against virginia tech uh and he actually pitched a very good game that was that was really the uh i know he had a couple games maybe where he looked good but that was like his uh his collegiate highlight uh so that that was that was fun to see back in 13 but i think what they're going to do the, the way these formats set up and it was the same way when you had the, the four-man pods or four-team pods uh, as it is now. But if you have a tie, the highest seed advances. <laughs> so if you're UNC, everything kind of works in your favor. And basically the way it, the way it sets up um, is if, if Pittsburgh beats Georgia Tech and they play the first game on Tuesday, uh, and then North Carolina beats Pitt, North Carolina's advanced to the semifinals, even before you get to the Friday game against Georgia Tech. And that's important. And the reason that's important is that uh, early word is that they're probably going to go with Chriswell uh, on Wednesday. So he has been, as I mentioned, their Friday night guy. Uh, so he would pitch Wednesday against Pitt. And then uh, if, if the Georgia Tech game is meaningless, then I think what you would probably see is maybe a, a Tyler Baum. This is that game doesn't matter. Uh, and that would allow you to pitch Luca Delatry on Saturday in the semifinal. Which if you win there, then you've got Austin Bergner sitting there as your as your your Saturday starter all year long pitching in the title game. So that sets up nice. Now, if if Georgia Tech beats Pittsburgh, then what that means is whoever wins that game on Friday between the Yellow Jackets and the Tar Heels, that team would advance. And so you know, North Carolina wants Delatry to pitch this week. They need him to get more innings under his belt uh, before they feel comfortable with him in the postseason. And so what would ultimately happen is that Luca would pitch Friday against Georgia Tech. And then if that happens, then you get into a situation where maybe Saturday you pitch Bergner, try to get to Sunday, and then Sunday you'd have Tyler Baum available and would hope that you know, he'd be able to get it done. So uh, you know, it's, it's not set in stone right now, but it does look like Chris Will will start Wednesday and then Delatry will pitch. Uh, but it's a matter of whether or not Friday is sewn up or not. He'll pitch either Friday or Saturday, and then you got Bergner and Baum there to to fill in the gaps. You get all that, Tommy? 
Yeah, it's crazy. I, I would ju- I would just have an <laughs> eight teams. I've heard a lot of names. Yeah, I would have a twelve team tournament. I'd have the top four teams got to buy to the quarterfinals. Everybody else played into that those games. You have a single elimination tournament and team with the best but pitching wins. You, you, now wait a minute. Now wait a minute. You are <laughs> as go. big of a baseball guy as I know. I know you you coach it. Your kids play it. You spent many weekends on the sitting around a baseball diamond. Do you think a single elimination sets up for, for any kind of baseball at any level? Probably not. But, I mean, ha- let me ask you this. How how important is the ACC tournament to Mike Fox? Or to uh, he any will of tell coaches? You, right. He will tell you. It's very similar to Roy Williams. He, will, I mean, he talked about today. Like, they want to win the ACC title. I mean, that that's a goal of theirs. But the way that they're structuring their pitching rotation this week is to set up for next week because they know they're in an NCAA tournament and they know they're going to host. Uh, so you have to use this week to prepare yourself for next week. But once you move, get past that fall process, they're going into every game trying to win. Um, and so no doubt that the, the big goals for this team are not in Durham. They're beyond. Um, but you, you're going to try to win. And so no doubt about that. But at the same time, like, like Mike said today, you have single elimination is not baseball. Baseball, you just have so many uh, oddities. It's such a unique sport where you, if you have a, a team that's not any good, but you have a kid on that team who has an incredible day pitching, mm-hmm. he could throw a no-hitter, and they could beat a team they have no business beating just because one kid had a, a, a heck of a day. Uh, and so by having the double elimination, you kind of get past that. Sort of like uh, Davidson beating Georgetown or Villanova beating Georgetown, those type right. situations. My right. thing is I just don't like that what you were talking about. If if Pitt beats Georgia Tech and Carolina beats Pitt, Carolina's in no matter what. It doesn't right. matter what happens against Georgia Tech. That just does not seem logical to me. I mean, even in <laughs> – you're talking about the baseball I coach. Even in that, on Saturday – it matters what you do on Saturday for seeding purposes on Sunday and it's runs given up or, you know, however you want to do it. But to have a situation where we've got to play a game on Friday night and it doesn't matter one way or another, whether we win or not, we're still playing the next day and the other team has no shot. Makes no sense to me. Right. Seems like, it seems like that'd be an easier way, but Ross, we're going to get on back, on, we're gonna back on track here. So I was looking <laughs> Stats here. I don't. I don't claim to be a baseball guy, Greg, but you know, looking at some numbers here, and UNC obviously leads the ACC in batting average, RBIs, runs, and on base percentage. How good is this team offensively, and how does this team kind of rank up to to pass UNC teams you know, in the last you know five or six, seven, eight years? Because last year they were very good as well, and it seems like this year they could do some damage in the postseason, but. It always seems with UNC baseball that they get there but never can, can kind of seal the deal. What are your thoughts on kind of that discussion? Yeah, I think if you look at kind of Mike Fox's body of work, he's always had incredible uh, pitching staffs, always has. And a lot of credit of that goes to Scott Forbes. Forbes has done a great job. Of course, you know, Scott's not doing pitching now. Uh, Robert Woodard is. Uh, but But even still, uh, those guys have just done a fantastic job. They've done a good job recruiting. Uh, I mean, you know, Matt Harvey, of course, uh, 
<laughs> you can argue that he probably should have gone pro out of high school, but it comes to North Carolina and is very good. Um, but where they've struggled is at the plate, kind of to your point, Ross. Um, and if you go back to some of those great teams that they had, that, that four-year run of going to, to four college world series. 06, 07, 08, I think, 08, that kind of range. 09, right. And you had, I mean, you had guys like Flack and uh, uh, FedEx and uh, Kyle Seeger and Dustin Ackley and just all kinds of guys that could hit. Um, it's, it, it, I, I happened to be at the, the Durham Bulls game on, on Sunday, and Ben Sherman was actually there too. And we're sitting there watching, uh, and they're playing Indianapolis. And who's who's catching for him? Jacob Stallings. You know, and he's a guy that you you really don't even think about, but he was on some of those those good teams a, a handful of years ago. Um, but kind of kind of what it's been is you you focus solely on pitching, and you some of these teams that have been uh, not so good or haven't been at least elite level like maybe the 06, 07, 08, 09 teams. Uh, they've really struggled at the plate. And this year's team's not that way. As I mentioned earlier, you, the, the bats have really carried them. Michael Bush has been fantastic all year long. He was really about the only guy hitting worth the flip uh, early in the year. And I mentioned you, know, Brandon Riley, he's batting 301 now. And you look at that and say, oh, that's pretty good. Well, he's batting 094 the first month of the season. You know, he's batting over 400 last you know, month or so. Uh, so he's been really good. And a lot of these guys have just been consistent up and down the lineup. And so when you add in a guy like Delatry, all of a sudden this team becomes much much more well rounded. Um, you know they're, they're thirteen and twelve against uh, the, the RPI, I think top fifty, and I think that's why you know, maybe some people don't have them as high up the national seed chart. And you know, we'll have to see exactly how good the SEC is because the SEC is getting all kinds of love this year. Um, but I think this is a very well rounded team. Um, and you know, if you don't have to rely on one guy at the plate, and that hasn't always been the case for some of these Carolina teams, and I think that bodes well for them. And I think they they have some depth on the mound. They may not have as many elite guys as they've had in, in years past. They have some good options, and so um, you know, maybe not as good as some of the, the great teams that UNC's had. But I think now that they've got some pieces coming together. I think it's very interesting, and I, it wouldn't surprise me to, to see them make a, a legitimate run, at least maybe to Omaha this year. Back your bags, Greg. Your, your mentioning of of Jacob Stallings reminded me of your you ripping Kevin Stallings this season after the pick. Different, uh, different yeah. opinion of Jacob versus his father. Yeah. I was like, dang, did Greg just write that? <laughs> what what yeah. else are we gonna write about that pit game, right? Oh, that's yeah, right. Wow, mm-hmm. that's some bad memories for that mm, pit. Let me ask you this, Greg. You mentioned the national seedings, and you also mentioned the SEC. And people may think I'm weird, but I watch a fair amount of uh, the girls' softball in college, and the SEC has just, like, dominated that sport. I'm sure that they're going to get plenty of love on the college baseball side, but is it rational to believe that Carolina could not get a top eight seed no matter what happens here in, in Durham this weekend and this week? I think that could happen. Um, D1 baseball, uh, you know, them and Baseball America are probably the two best sites covering you and uh, covering college baseball now. Uh, but D1 baseball, I think, has Carolina as a six seed nationally. So, given that, I would I would think that if North Carolina flames out and loses both games, uh, they would probably have a good chance of falling out. They would still host, but not be a national seed. 
Um, but you know, I, I think I think if you take care of business, at least win one game, they have to feel pretty good. Uh, just because I mean, RPI, they're number six, they're top five strength of schedule. Um, you know, they are 13 and 12 against your know, group one teams, which isn't great, but they've also played 25 games against group one teams. Um, and you look at a team like Oregon state, just looking at their stats, uh, you know, they're seven and three against those same teams. So I've played a, a lot fewer games. So it really depends on how much weight the committee gives RPI. And in recent years, uh, it has been a lot, although some would argue that not enough because UNC had pretty good RPIs back. Uh, several years ago, and they were left out two years in a row. Uh, but but I think North Carolina is fairly safe, especially if they win at least one game. They have to feel pretty good about about keeping on to a national seed. But kind of to your point, Tommy, I mean, if you look at kind of how things are projected right now, you're looking at you know, Florida, Georgia, Arkansas, probably locks for national seeds out of the SEC. And then Ole Miss is, is right there challenging for a fourth national seed in the SEC too. It's crazy how those teams are always in it and always in the mix. Carolina is as well. ACC tournament starts on Tuesday. Carolina plays Wednesday and Friday and likely Saturday and Sunday, but we'll see how it shakes out. We're going to take a quick break, come back, talk a little Kobe White action, Leaky Black action. Ross will go from questioner to questionee when we come back. Some brands offer you low finance or cashback or servicing. Renault don't do ors. We do ands. The Renault Kajar with 1.91% APR and €1,000 cashback and three years servicing, saving you thousands. Renault, the brand with the ands. Visit your local Renault dealer. Finances made under a higher purchase agreement. Terms and conditions apply. Deposit required. Subject to lending criteria. See Renault.ie. And we're back from break and it's Greg and my turn to question you, Ross. You've done some excellent work on the Kobe White stories, let's talk a little bit about Kobe. And I admit I hadn't watched a lot of his interviews, a lot of his stuff, um, highlights, of course, but I I thought you did some solid work over at Greenfield School in Wilson. And what surprised me um, is how much work he's putting in the weight room and preparing for the physical beating he's going to take in in college as opposed to maybe what he took in high school. Just speak to that, and also overall, your thoughts and takeaways from the time you spent with him. Yeah, for sure. And we had our um, the second piece of this series come out on Monday, and we should have another one come out on Tuesday. And then we'll release the full interview with, with Kobe White and the full interview with his coach, Rob Salter. And they were great. I, I went there, uh, I guess it was last Monday, May 14th, and um, spent some time with them. I actually kind of like lifted weights with them because they had a weight session after our interview before they got into the basketball court, which I wanted to film some of their um, some of the some of the drills they were doing with some uh, kind of one on one training. And yeah, I mean, he, Kobe's a he's a he's a six four legit six four pushing six five, um, and he's not he, he kind of has a, a little skinny vibe, but he's definitely a guy who can has a frame to put on some muscle. And he's definitely putting the work, but I mean, beyond that, he's going to get in, in good shape, and he's going to have a guy who can who can handle the rigors of ACC play. I'm not worried about that. A summer with Jonas, and he's going to look like a, a college player. But you know, I was just impressed with, um, you know, he's going to be a dynamic offensive player, and you can just see it because he can score at all three levels. 
And he is really focused on the mid-range game. If you watch the highlights that we posted of kind of these five-second drills, all focusing on different ways to break down the defender, kind of get into your spot, use the dribble to to create space, use screens, um, avoid a hedging guy on a screen. And he, he's really sharp with his handle. He's really quick. And it's going to be exciting to see what he does next year. And we explored it today about what position he's going to play. And we can talk about that a little bit more on this podcast. But um, he's going to have a chance to, to do some special things in year one. And his mindset, I think, is what kind of makes him stand out. Um, you know, he's he's got that little bit of a dog in him. He, he, he likes to talk a little bit on the court. He's kind of a shy guy who, ha- who I've seen over the last three years kind of come out of the shell, which has been cool. And uh, he just loves basketball. He loves getting better. He loves to compete. You know, he had some quotes about defense, and I think that's going to go over well with Roy Williams and the UNC fan base. And uh, he's going to be a special player who I think, you know, mentally is going to be in the right mindset to, to be a, a big-time player for, for UNC, whether that's one year, two years, or, or three or four years. So um, that's kind of the general gist of what I got from my time in Wilson. Ross, this this may predate you, and if so, I can I can ask another question. But <laughs> the the way you spoke about that, and the way I've heard others talk about it, and a little bit of film that I've seen, sounds an awfully lot like Joseph Forte. Is Boom. that a is that a similarity, or am I yeah. just reaching there? Yeah, I think that's what a lot of people have have said. I think that was an early comparison that people floated out there, and I think his coach mentioned that. I think that's because of his ability to score in the mid-range. I don't know if he's going to be as smooth as Forte was. Um, I watched I watched a good deal of Forte, and he was just a silky shooter who could just score you know, from yep. that range. Um, and could get to lane two and had a three-point shot as well, but was really known for that kind of sweet jump shot. Um, if, if I'm if I'm right there, and Kobe, if you watch his tape, he has a very herky jerky style of play. It's super aggressive. Uh, he's going to draw a lot of fouls, and he can get into the lane. He, he he's going to be unlike a player UNC has had in some time because he can break you down off the dribble. He's going to kill it in transition because he's so fast and so quick. And then he's long. You know, he's he's bigger, a lot bigger than Joel Berry, a lot bigger than Ty Lawson. You know, he's a long big you know will be a strong point guard um and that's what's intriguing because he, he has point guard skills in a, uh, a body like uh maybe say like a wayne ellington in terms of just his length and kind of that six four kind of shooting guard size it, you greg i said boom when you mentioned forte because that's exactly who i always think about when i see him play forte was just another level of smooth like you mentioned ross he was something else we certainly talked about the performance at duke for forte but you know i'm not sold that he's a point guard and and that's what's going to be interesting to see once he gets on campus plays with these guys can he run that position i mean do you have those thoughts and doubts or is that just something that um, we're gonna have to live with and see how it works out because you know we've talked about it how Roy Williams envisions him playing point, and given what's on the roster now, he may need to do that for Carolina to be successful. Yeah, so I, I wrote about that today. It was Kobe White in his college position, and there's some intriguing quotes there from his coach and from him. The fact that he has never, you know, never not played the point guard position, like mostly through high school, he had the ball in his hands. He was obviously the best player on his team, and so he said that playing off the ball 
is going to be a weird, weird switch for him if that's what he has to do. Because I think he needs the ball in his hands to, to score the way he does. That's the way he's been most effective. Uh, his coach, Rob Salter, said that, I mean, the biggest thing, the biggest you know, thing he's going to have to adapt to in college is moving without the ball and how it's just a different mindset because you usually have um, – you know, you usually have the ball in your hands. You create for yourself and and distribute that way. So it's been interesting to see. And we, we've talked about a little bit whether you know Seventh Woods gets a start or, or maybe Roy just hands the keys to Kobe from day one. You know, I also went down to to Leaky Black, and you know that's a point guard as well who could who could become a a point guard at UNC and maybe play alongside Kobe. Um, and so I think no matter you know, where he plays, Kobe plays. I think he's going to need the ball in his hands a lot, especially in transition. I think UNC will want him to have the ball in his hands just because of how quick he is. I don't see him being a spot-up shooter type guy. Um, I, I see him being a distributor, a scorer, and a distributor, and a, and a playmaker with the ball in his hands. And usually that translates to uh, to point guard. So it'll be interesting to watch, especially with what UNC has coming in next year with Woods and, and Leaky Black and some other guys. Yeah, but I think it's important too to say that uh, you know, after th- 2012, Roy made a point that he wanted multiple point guards on the roster, yep. or at least guys that could could handle the ball. Uh, and I mean, I, I think we need to be honest that you know, if Seventh Woods comes in and is healthy and is able to play his first two years, maybe he's he's automatically the guy starting. But he has that hasn't been the case. And then you have Jalik Felton, who was a five star point guard if if he lives up the expectations and, and keeps his nose clean then he's coming back and so you have a pretty good depth chart there with with Jalik and seventh uh, and maybe Kobe can play off the ball um, but that's not the case you know Jalik's not here and seventh has been injured um, and has played a little bit but I mean, he's he's finally healthy but it took you know, basically his first two years to get that way uh, and so I think that's what's really has opened the door for Kobe to kind of step into this role. Um, and so I think that's important to note that you know, Kobe maybe can be that guy because he is comfortable, like Ross says, with the ball in his hands. Uh, but it wasn't intended that way. So this yeah. is kind of uh, this is kind of making uh, you know, lemonade out of, out of lemons, if you will, in terms of dealing with the situation at hand, even though that's not what Roy had, had kind of penciled in a few years ago. And- He's a good – Kobe's a really good three-point shooter too. And, and whether that translates immediately, because I know a lot of people struggle with that in college, uh, is yet to be seen. But you know, Coach raved. Obviously, the, the coach is going to speak glowingly about his star player, but the, the coach raved about how he's got, become a lot better shooter. They've worked on his range, and he's demonstrated that. He shot something like 45% from three this season in high school. Uh, but it's usually off the dribble. It's, it's not coming off screens. It's not moving out the ball. It's it's not spot-up style jump shooting. Um, and <laughs> You mentioned Jalik. It's crazy to think about the speed they would have with Jalik and Kobe in the backcourt next year, and seventh for that matter, if, uh, if Jalik could keep his nose clean, as you said. Well, let me ask you this, Ross, and then we'll move on, and it might be a segue to moving on into the other guy we wanted to talk about. But, you know, I see if you want to compare Joel Berry to Kobe White, uh, both like the score. And uh, the thing Carolina had the last couple of years – um, when Roy Williams needed a facilitator, he could, and he basically did the last month and a half of this season, this past season, is use Theo Pinson as the point guard. So my question there becomes, if 
if Kobe White is your scoring point guard, who becomes your facilitator uh, sort of down the stretch or at times like Pinson was? I mean, Nasir Little, I don't know if he's that guy. Is, is Leaky Black potentially that guy? Maybe not next year, but the year after and, and you know, there on. Yeah, I think Leaky automatically is a distributor first. He's not much of a scorer right now. He's not much of a shooter. Um, and he, he could be the guy that'd be more of a pure point guard. It's just crazy because he's he's six eight, man. And I, I stood next to him and he's legit six eight. So that guy as your point guard is, is crazy to think about. So I think you'll see a lot in the next year or two and three with multiple kind of ball handlers in, like we saw with Paige and, and Barry and Barry and Pinson. And when you have guys like Woods, like Kobe White, like Leaky Black, and then Jeremiah Francis coming in 2019. Um, you're going to see some double point guard situations, which I think plays well for what Kobe White can do um, as as Leaky Black develops into the player he can be. Because I think we don't really know what uh, Leaky is right now because he's, he's, he's definitely more of a distributor than a shooter. So he's gonna his role and his style play will change over the course of uh, the next uh, three or four years. All right. Good stuff, Ross. We look forward to the rest of your stories on Kobe White and more on the recruiting trail as the summer progresses. Always at InsideCarolina.com, the UNC Basketball Premium Board. You can always get in on that discussion. And now, and this is a, a topic that Ross came up with. We sort of, <laughs> we've done baseball, we've done basketball. Let's do a little football. Dre Bly, his birthday is this week. I don't even want to venture how old he is because then it makes me seem a lot more a lot older than I am, but let's go here, Ross. On this occasion, Dre Bly, clearly one of the best corners at Carolina ever. Robert Williams on the other side of the field, uh, probably a better cornerback, but certainly not uh, thought of that way by casual observers. Your thoughts on maybe the best defenders in Carolina football history, defensive players, and let's let's keep Lawrence Taylor out of it because everybody's <laughs> going to say that. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this is kind of we'll we'll just evolve into a discussion of just kind of yeah some of the the standouts that we remember from our from our times watching UNC play and and Dre Bly's birthday is on Tuesday. He turns forty, and uh, obviously the guy that comes to mind is Julius Peppers as a standout. And you know, I didn't really start watching UNC football until the two thousands, so my uh, depth of players is going to be limited which is why i'm going to turn the question over to y'all but you know i remember like what could of robert quinn be but what could robert quinn have been that that year he got suspended um those teams had some great defenders with the linebackers there um who who, who the two linebackers i'm forgetting bruce uh, bruce, bruce yeah bruce Carter. zach brown yeah, yeah. I mean, those guys are some freak athletes from my memory and my time as a student at unc so uh, those are the guys that come to mind for me. Turn it over to Greg. Greg, what are your favorite or, or guys that stand out in defense? Well, you you talk about following in the two thousands. I was in school in the late nineties, um, which is kind of a you know a, a boon for North Carolina your defense. I mean, you're talking about uh, I guess the ninety seven team, so the ninety eight draft. You had three guys taken in the first round. Um, and you, you just the names just kind of roll off the tongue. You know, you know Marcus Jones, who of course is earlier, Vonnie Holiday, Brian Simmons, Bly. And I'm glad. Uh, and Tommy and I talked have talked about this before, but I'm glad Tommy mentioned Robert Williams because you know, Robert was a 
uh, first team all ACC guy. Uh, he's just opposite of Dre Bly. And it's one of the reasons that, that Dre had the great freshman year, retro freshman year that he had, because uh, Robert was so good. And, and Dre Bly even told us, I uh, told IC last year that, that he thought Robert Williams was the best cover corner that UNC has ever had. Um, but then if you go further back, I mean, you have D Hardison, uh, you know, I think the fact that he, he just passed away due to heart issues last month, uh, a young guy, but he was, he was kind of the stud of, of those great dually teams there in the, in the seventies. Um, and so guys like that. And of course, you know, we're not mentioning Lawrence Taylor, but that's, that's kind of like the, the Michael Jordan of Carolina football. I mean, you went on to be arguably the, the best linebacker to ever play in the NFL. Um, and so I've, I've heard all kinds of, of stories about Lawrence over the years, just from some good friends of mine that were in Chapel Hill, either in school or just living in the area during the time that, that Lawrence was, was around pretty, uh, pretty wild stories. Um, but those are, those are kind of the names that, that, that stick out to me, especially there in the, the late nineties of just how many of those guys on that, those Mac Brown teams were just, just studs. The story I always hear is Lawrence Taylor like throwing a, a Coke uh, machine off like the seventh floor of the dorm or something. Is that the story yeah, that you all have heard? I haven't heard that one, but a, a good buddy of mine claims he, he watched this because um, he was in school at the same time. Uh, but apparently going down uh, Franklin Street, there's a, a bunch of frat boys in a pickup truck out of the back. And apparently they had been drinking and they saw Lawrence walking down Franklin street and they started yelling at him. And I don't think they were yelling anything bad at him. They're just yelling at him. And apparently all of a sudden Lawrence stopped whatever he was doing, runs into Franklin street and basically chases them down and climbs into the back of the pickup truck. He scared the absolute crap out of those guys, but he was just messing with them. And uh, yeah, stuff like that. You need to, you need to read his book. I think it's LT living on the edge. A lot of those stories are in there. Uh, definitely times have changed. It's safe to say <laughs> that um, if the stuff that went on back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and even some of the 90s when I was there, if it happened in this day and age, there'd be a lot less names we're talking about for some of the sports teams, <laughs> Love specifically to football. <laughs> Here's some Tommy Ashley, Franklin Street, Chapel Hill stories back in the 90s. Um, yeah. Shirts. Yeah. And I, I don't know if I ever wore flannel shirts. I think I wore corduroy pants for the first 14, 15 years of my life because I didn't like how jeans were. <laughs> but things changed once we got to Carolina. I, I think um, when I think about best defensive players, before we get too far off, you know, everybody talked about LT, but a guy like William Fuller didn't get the recognition that he has now and has later. But I always look at those guys like the defensive linemen. Everybody wants to see the edge rushers or the linebackers, you know, or, or guys like Dre Bly. But the defensive linemen are what make those teams good, what made the Dooley teams good on defense, what made uh, Dick Crumb's teams when he had some decent teams, Mac Brown, uh, Butch Davis, those guys made the difference. Our listeners can certainly chime in with their sure. favorite players. That would be interesting to see what, you know, how the boards, how the tar pit boards sort of span the you know, probably 40 or 50 years of Carolina football and hear what they have to say. For sure. And Greg, you were in school with Dre Bly, right? And and both y'all watched uh, Peppers play. How good were those two guys uh, when you look at kind of where they rank among UNC defenders, how dominant they were in college? Because they've had great pro careers, both of them. 
you know, I, Tommy is a little bit older than me, so he may have a different opinion on Bly. But I, I really think, and this is not a knock by any stretch on Bly, because obviously he went on to a great pro career. Uh, but I think he really benefited from having so many studs around him. Um, and I think by the time Peppers got there, uh, you know, he, he redshirted his first year, so clearly there's a lot of talent there. Uh, but I, I think other than really Ryan Sims, um, he didn't have as much talent. And then when he started doing some of the things he did, especially you know, Bunning's first year, uh, I think it was, it was crazy impressive of how incredible of an athlete he was and the fact that he played basketball. Um, so I, I, to me, Peppers, in terms of like elite specimens, you mentioned Robert Quinn. Quinn's kind of in that same ballpark. But Peppers was just like, you knew he was like the stud on the field. And I don't know that that Bly was ever necessarily that guy. And that may just be because he was on such a dominant defense and there's just so many other really good players around him. I think Bly, his freshman year was phenomenal. Um, You know, and I think he benefited a lot from Robert Williams being on the other side. I mean, but Greg's right. If you don't have but a second and a half to get a pass off, you don't have a lot of time to pick a defense apart. And Bly had the best um, reaction to the ball that anybody I've seen in a, in a while his freshman year. And I thought, and, you know, it's just my untrained eye, I thought he got a little bit heavy his his sophomore and junior year. Um, and also they didn't go at him as much because – you know, when you have 11, was 11 interceptions your freshman year, they're not coming your way. Julius Peppers is the only athlete I've ever been physically in awe of. And I don't say that um, in any kind of weird way. It's just we've covered a ton of guys, the three of us. And, you know, I've done this inside Carolina stuff for 20 years. And he is the only guy that was just, like you said, Greg, a physical specimen. I mean, he's just a big old country goofy country guy too and he was absolutely a monster um but as nice as he could be but on the field i mean i remember the clemson game i think what they win down there 38 to 3 or something like that he's he tormented their quarterback he was batting the ball up there and intercepting it he did it so many times i mean that's a guy that if carolina could ever get um 80 percent of that or maybe even 75% of that on the field um, for a couple seasons in a row, this Carolina football team that Fedora's put together might be completely different. Um, But Peppers, like you said, as far as a physical specimen and an athlete, there's, I don't think anybody compares. I mean, he was basically LeBron James's size, um, but 40 more pounds with that same body playing football. Yeah. And I I think, I think for, for the local in-state people that would know these names, like Mario Williams at State was a stud. He was number one draft pick, part of those great, you know, the, I guess it was the, uh, I guess it was the 05 state defense that was ranked number one nationally. It was like the year after Phillip Rivers left because Amato made a big deal. Hey, if we just had, you know, Phillip for one more year, we'd have this incredible team. Mario was the number one pick, and he was a great athlete. And ended up being a pretty good defensive player, but he was not even in the same class as, as peppers. And so I think that distinction of like, he's so much better than so many other people. And the fact that you know, he's still playing and still being disruptive, uh, what 17 years after he's been drafted, that kind of speaks to that. I mean, now he's kind of like average. Now he's like some of the younger guys, even though he's, he's an old dude about my age. 
You know, it's it's crazy to think, but I don't I don't see UNC ever landing an in-state guy like Peppers in, in this era now where Clemson, Bama, Virginia Tech, Tennessee can come in and, and steal all the elite defensive players. Um, you know, I guess Jalen Dalton was maybe the last in-state really kind of stud, you know, four-star guy, top 50 guy that UNC got. And I mean, he hasn't really panned out exactly. It's kind of a, but I would say, I would say we can explain that. And we've talked about it before, but Mac Brown went one in 10 his first two years in what, 88, 89. But then after that, they started winning and they won nine games and I don't know what, 93, 94. And so at that point in time, from there up, they were winning all these games and they were one of the best teams in the ACC. So Peppers comes along like five years later and he grows up with North Carolina being a very good team in the ACC. That's what it takes. It, it takes winning a lot of games for a lot of years in a row to where kids, when they're seventh grade, say, hey, Carolina's pretty good this year. And then they're eighth grade. Well, they're pretty good again. And each year it builds. Instead of it being, oh, okay, well, they were seven and five, seven and five, six and seven. And so it's it's not something that's going to happen overnight. You have to build that success over a period of years. Clemson has done that. Oregon did that. You know, Baylor did that for a long time before you know, crap hit the fan with, with Bryles. There's a lot of examples of that over the years where you just have to have a, a long stretch of a lot of success to start getting these kids early that are dominant players. I agree with that. I mean, and with it, you know, the way you can be on the internet and see all over the world, see all over the country, I mean, there's not that. I want to play for my hometown school as much anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's, you know, your mom can see you play on at any school in the country pretty easy on a big screen TV or can get back and forth um, a lot easier than you used to be. I think times have certainly changed. And uh, I think Carolina's got to keep up. I mean, they're, they're, they're players in the local area. There's players that live. There's players that live within a couple miles of where I sit tonight that uh, could make the difference, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, We have covered the waterfront, and so now we're going to get out of here. Greg Ross, it's always been a pleasure. Ross, I know you've got a big trip coming. Safe travels, my friend. Greg, I know you'll be covering the ACC tournament, baseball tournament. We'll talk more about that. Guys, that's going to do it for this one, though. Thanks. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks for listening to InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC sports. Your home for Tar Heel football, basketball, and recruiting.